1: Most of us have discovered that life is never a straight line. It actually resembles a series of zigzags. We zig in order to strengthen our creative gifts. We zag in order to provide a roof over our head and food on the table. Today we'll be looking at the life adventures of a father, a husband, writer, a corporate marketer, a world traveler, a meditation and yoga teacher with our guests, Karan Bajaj. His most recent novel has elements that reflect his own life as he juggles a corporate career, art, and family. Bajaj has incorporated sabbaticals from corporate life in order to travel and deepen his spiritual journey. He continues to wrestle with some of life's great questions, such as, what makes a meaningful life? Karan Bajaj was born and raised in India and has trained as a Hatha Yoga teacher at the Shivananda Ashram in South India. He learned meditation in the Himalayas and has been named one of India Today's Top 35 Under 35. He lives in New York City but soon to be returning to India with his wife and young daughter. He's the author of several novels including Johnny Gone Down, and Keep Off the Grass, both of which were number one bestsellers in India. His most recent novel is The Yoga of Max's Discontent, also known in India as The Seeker. Join us for the next hour as we explore how one person attempts to live the yogic life in the heart of the material world with our guest, Karan Bajaj. I'm Justine Willis Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Karan, welcome.
2: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. You um, have your feet in two worlds, it seems. And um, so, how do you reconcile those two worlds?
2: In the beginning, I would think it would be the same conflict that people talk about art and and business and stuff. But I think over the last few years, it's evolved to a little bit of what I think of as a one stream view in which I just see life as a continuous journey of growth and transformation in every field. And sometimes it ebbs and flows more towards my writing. Sometimes it ebbs and flows more towards my career. So I've I've stopped kind of wrestling with that question too much. For example, I've just, to give you a particular example, I've just finished my novel, which is just, you know, The Yoga of Max's is Discontent. It's out right now. I'm publicizing and promoting it. I'm now starting a new job as uh, I'm going to lead a media network in India as the CEO, and I'm going to work on that undistracted for the next couple of years. And then again, I'm sure I learn a lot from the job, would want to express it through writing again. And then I'm going to probably take a detour again and and write so i'm i'm trying not to wrestle with it too much i'm just trying to flow and ebb and flow according to what's needed and just like trying to learn and grow with every activity that i do
1: so it sounds like you're you're practicing being present with what is right now
2: exactly with what is right now and just going uh this concept in india which we call dharma is an interesting concept which is about that every being has a natural tendency Uh, and uh, for example the tendency of a tree is to grow and bear fruit it's not to flow and become a river so in a sense what I'm trying to do is to purify I guess my life my thoughts my actions so that I'm just a conduit for my best tendency if you will and sometimes it is like I have a very good business mind and, and that's fine. And I have a reasonably good creative side and that's fine as well. And I know it's some combination of business and creativity. And and I just try to express it the best through that rather than have this very kind of convoluted debate with myself, am I a business guy? Am I an artist? Am I combination? Like I'm some combination of that and I express myself in my best way uh, in whatever the situation arises, when it arises.
1: So in other words, you're not, Compartmentalizing your life, there it's it's kind of all connected in some ways. Exactly. Yeah. I want to talk about you have have taken uh, several sabbaticals from corporate life, yeah. and I I would love for you to share with us. Let's say um, one of your earlier sabbaticals, you took a year off, and can you get describe how you manage to do that in in your travels.
2: Yes, absolutely. So over the last decade, um I've kind of defaulted I guess into something which I call like a 414 rule in which I work for 4 years and take a year off, then work for 4 years and take a year off and like I've done it 3 times now. And the first sabbatical I took was in 2007, um you know, 4 or 5 years after I started working and I was with Procter & Gamble and I left to essentially the first one was very basic. I just left to backpack and travel. And I lived in places that I'd always dreamt about and fantasized about for no particular reason, but I just felt like that I wanted to really live in Mongolia and I wanted to live in Bhutan. And so I just did that. Like so there's no great like, you know, rhyme or reason behind it, but I, I just did that. But the interesting thing that happened in the sabbatical was that for the first few months I just traveled and backpacked and I realized that I was actually not very happy while doing it, which was very contradictory to the way I thought it would be because it was my live stream to travel. but I realized that I'm a very achievement oriented kind of person and going and seeing a cathedral in Germany and then seeing another cathedral in Mongolia and then seeing the desert and like it, it wasn't it was just observing and seeing and and I just was very honest with myself saying that this is not enjoyable for me and I and then suddenly I started to write. so that kind of started to anchor those days of like, listlessness, if you will, of just traveling without a purpose, I started to anchor it with writing and I'd never written creatively before. So this was the first time I attempted to write because it just felt like uh, the right thing to do at that time and that anchored my days a lot during the sabbatical. And at the end of that year, I'd written a novel uh, despite having never written anything, like even a short story before, uh, I had written a novel that uh, went on to do very well in India. And that kind of sparked this whole idea that if you can completely deconstruct your life, you don't even know what you're capable of, right? So the the reason I started writing was because suddenly there was this vacuum of, of not working, of not having certain habits, patterns, life, like being away from my environment. And that led to me figuring out that I could be a writer. And I actually wrote a novel which did quite well. So I was suddenly like, I should really systemize this principle of breaking down my life completely every couple of years. So then I came back, worked again for a few years, and then broke my life down again the next time over, and did something similar. And so I'm, I'm kind of now practicing this principle that I should never get too comfortable with my environment. I should like willfully break myself down every couple of years. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> oh, that's a that's a great challenge, and and because we do get so. Immersed in our habits and yeah. routines, yeah. and uh, so breaking out of them, and also talking about writing. I, it seems to me, and I think that you've said this in some of your blogs, or, or I've read it somewhere. That, and I know it's true for me. It, sometimes I don't know what I know until I write it down, until I'm I'm doing some sort of creative writing or journaling or. For me, it's writing. I write essays, and uh, and and then I find out. Oh, I didn't even know I knew that. Is that somewhat like you? Yeah.
2: Very much, absolutely. And I think now I'm writing more and more, especially all the blogs and the videos and stuff that I do. They do pretty well. Like I have a pretty good audience, and like all that stuff. But I've honestly, I'm doing it very much for myself. In a long, in a in a way that I'm trying to synthesize my idea down on a particular topic to its very core essence and, and writing helps me do that. Otherwise it's a bunch of disjointed thoughts. I think writing is, gives me the discipline of synthesizing all of that into one coherent stream. And, and that's very, very liberating.
1: Going back to, to your travels, um, I want to talk about how you, you got into yoga. And I think I think you really discovered that in um, South India. Am I correct in that?
2: I yes. did. I did a yoga teacher's training in South India, but I did a lot of meditation up in the Himalayas where I grew up in the mountains.
1: So you grew up in the mountains. I
2: grew up in the Indian mountains, but in Shimla, which is actually a little bit uh, different from the place where I did my like meditation training and all that stuff. But I grew up up in the Himalayas in Shimla in India. Yeah.
1: Well, that, a pretty special place. Can you describe what that was like Yeah, for it you? was
2: special. It's become a little bit more touristed now because India as a country has grown. But when we were growing up, it was very kind of idyllic in some ways, almost what you could um, think of as a small Indian mountain town, if you will. Uh, like very kind of disconnected from the world uh i would i would i would like to call it it was very spiritual but I, but i would say that uh, our relationship with spirituality was a little bit conflicted in india when we were growing up because uh people of my generation wanted to like leave our tradition behind so we kind of associated yoga meditation all the people who came to do yoga and meditation with a little bit of the either loserish crowd or we would think of them as being people who things to do after retirement, and we never thought of it. As, so we were almost kind of, we wanted to be Americans, really. So so I think in that, like, our aspiration was to kind of break out of that circuit completely. The funny part is that all of those memories remained with me. Uh, so So when I was growing up in Shimla, near us, there were many ashrams, and you would always have both Indians and Westerners. And very qualified Indians, like doctors, lawyers, engineers, who would leave everything behind and stay and live in ashrams for years. And at that time, we were very puzzled. Like, why would anybody leave success and do this? Right? And and we didn't aspire to that at all. But the funny part is that I left India, like followed my trajectory of like, you know, being in the world, like experiencing a lot of things. But then I had the same... And I did exactly that, you know,
1: <laughs> 35, it, 30,
2: 35 years later. In a, in a in a yeah.
1: slightly different way, though, you would do it like in these sabbaticals, so to speak, and then rather than leaving, let's say, corporate life or work all together, rather than waiting till you were yeah. older, you've been doing it interspersed. I, I would
2: say, though, that my sabbaticals in the beginning were very external. Uh, very outer directed so they were traveling uh, like you know backpacking through like South America etc but the last sabbatical has been very inner directed so that's very different from my previous sabbaticals because I've spent the last sabbatical really in ashrams in first in the South India in the yoga ashram for two couple of months then in the Himalayas for four months so I was very silent in the in this period that was a little unusual so I think I, like really I've always been in touch with uh The yoga meditation thing, but never deepened my practice until a couple of years ago through this.
1: I'm here with Karan Bajaj, and he is the author of The Yoga of Max's Discontent. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, karanbajaj.com. And he spells his name K-A-R-A-N-B-A-J-A-J. Dot .com or you can get there through the new dimensions website newdimensions.org I'm Justine Willis Toms you're listening to new dimensions I'm here with Karan Bajaj, and he is the author of the Yoga of Max's Discontent. And there, there was something that you mentioned earlier, something about doership, uh, doership. Um, and this, this is in connection with the meaning of life, and in uh, how we, you were talking about uh, how we one one of the meanings would be to lose our sense of self and and really just be instead of do so can you elaborate on that
2: yeah um again there's a beautiful thought which i really like which says that a yogi's actions are neither black nor white they are colorless so a yogi is not trying to do good or bad in the world he's just trying to be a spontaneous He's just spontaneously acting. Uh, Like, you know, uh, so that's a beautiful thought, which really means that the yogi's world, like yogi's job is really to simplify, uh, to purify his life, really. Like, which means to have the whole practices are meant to to still his mind and uh, purify his thoughts and purify his, his actions. And that's all he's supposed to do. It's beautiful because I think too much times in the West, people are like, Trying to help this world, help the world, and like, you know, and they're like different expressions of ego, even in that.
1: Being an activist. Being an activist,
2: if you will. While a yogi is not trying to be black, white, he's colorless. He's just spontaneously. So, what I, that's in a sense what I'm trying to do is if, like, if, like, uh, to be silent enough so that if my best expression is to do good in business, for example, if I'm joining a media company and I'm doing like spontaneously, I'm doing good work in that media company. That's my expression, rather than trying to uh, do good by going to Haiti and like doing something that's not in line with my purest natural tendency. So, so in a sense, that's what the I guess the beauty of this is that if you can really silence your mind, you'll end up expressing yourself in the way which is most organic to you, and will end up doing the best possible action that you that that is your destiny to do in this world.
1: So it, being a let's say a, a householder uh I know that you're a father you yeah. have a young daughter you're married so and and you're working in corporate yeah. corporate uh settings and and then you're a writer you're a novelist uh and so it, it, all of that has a lot of expression in it you're you're expressing right. a lot but you're you're holding it in a way of not being attached to it, exactly. I guess, Yeah, like yeah that? no, I think
2: that's very well said, not being attached to it. So like if I, for example, today, which I see with many writers is if I try, if I tend to get attached to this idea that I've come up with a novel, it's doing pretty well, Random House wants me to write my next novel, and I have my audience and what should I do? And like, these are all decisions based on attachments of what like, you know, the ideal path of a writer should be. My approach is more like I my feeling right now, based on a pretty silent life, my feeling right now is that my best expression right now is in doing a CEO role in India in a media company. And that's completely fine. I don't really have any attachment at all to what happens to the audience that I've built up and the publisher wants my next novel within 18 months. I mean, I have none of that. Like maybe I won't write for three years until I feel like that would be the next best expression. So like that would be the time to express myself. So I feel very, I guess, like contented with how I can express myself and I have no like uh, goals and attachments towards. Uh, so I think that's pretty purified action because then it allows me to be present without conflict. And yeah.
1: What about the idea of, it, it's a Buddhist idea of being a bodhisattva, coming back uh to be helpful to others yeah. uh, in some way that, that that one person maybe has reached a state yeah. of enlightenment, yeah. so to speak, and, and yet uh, they, they make the decision to reincarnate or to keep coming back until all beings have reached that state of oneness. Uh, what, what about that concept?
2: Um, again, very hard to like rationalize or not, yeah. but that's, uh, I think that's the Hinayana thing versus the Mahayana thing or, uh, it's a belief. So I yes. like, it's not kind of completely conversant with my beliefs, but that's nothing to, to say whether that's right or wrong. But I genuinely don't believe that, um, like that, uh, that I guess my destiny is to come and enlighten millions of people. I feel like everybody has a certain dharma, a certain push, a certain tendency, and you're best served, you're best serving the world by acting in line with that and not going outside that. So if the Bodhisattvas, if that concept exists, then basically what we're talking about is people whose destiny it is to help millions of people. And that's beautiful. I mean, Ooh. like, you know, that that's very similar to what I would also say that if there are some people whose Natural dharma, natural thrust is to help millions of people. It,
1: it, that when you talk about belief, that that goes back to like, I don't know if I would say that you may not have a belief in belief. <laughs> does, yeah. Does that you know? I mean, like, like you really in in the book, the yeah. yoga of masks is discontent. Y- you kind of go through some things where where even. Even uh, I can't remember exactly, but what not to be attached to even the slightest sort of mm-hmm. belief—you you, belief in in suffering or non-suffering, mm-hmm. or belief in in um, being anesthetic, or or belief in in even yoga or whatever—it's yeah. just like to release it all is is what what. You've kind of come up with yes, there.
2: exactly. I think my end conclusion is to silence my own mind, which <laughs> like the chitta vritti nirodha, the idea, if you will, which is that I'm best served by silencing my mind and and then being then being really like to be and then acting very spontaneously based on what the natural thrust within is, rather than like attaching myself to I'm going to help this world or I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Those are all. Kind of attachments that, um, at least in my perspective, pull you down into acting out of accordance with your natural thrust.
1: There yeah. is a there is a Zen saying uh, to chop wood, carry water, yeah. and and in that saying, it's kind of and I think that you come to this towards the end of the book. It's like that you still act in the world, right. but I guess the Zen saying would say, "Before enlightenment, you chop mm-hmm. wood, carry, carry yes. water, and then after enlightenment, you chop wood, carry water." Yeah. So what's the difference? And that's kind of what you're trying to get at, I think. Y- yes, here. exactly.
2: Yeah, that in uh, that there is really the before enlightenment, you are acting. In line with what you should be acting at, and after enlightenment, you're just acting in line with what you should. You should basically be doing exactly the same. In in an ideal state, you should be doing exactly the same activity because you've been given a certain natural thrust. So, having said that, the best example is the Buddha himself. If you think of it in, over generations, there've been many enlightened people. Like there have been many obviously enlightened men up in the Himalayas. There are people who are like practicing this full time. Very few have had the thrust after enlightenment to come and awaken millions. Most of them have had the thrust to just be in the caves and let the body go after and a period we never of time. Hear we never them. hear of them because uh, that's what they said about the Buddha that his past lives were, uh, were, his karma and his dharma was a monarch, like he was a king who had an impact on a huge kingdom. And then in this life, he became a saint who got enlightened, and his thrust, his natural tendency, was to impact millions of people, and he did that in his enlightened state. And most people's tendency would be to either be on their own or to help five people. And that's why you have all these gurus helping five or six disciples. And that's their kind of activity after enlightenment. So I don't know, I don't think I'm going to get enlightened in this life. But my feeling is that if I do get enlightened, I'll go back to my job and work. <laughs> so like, that's, I mean, like, or oh, truly, honestly, that's what's going to so happen because
1: from yeah. the outside, it <laughs> yes. won't look any different. Exactly,
2: it won't because right. it'll just be like I'm acting in line with my thrust now, and after awakening, I'm going to act in line with my thrust. I'm not going to become uh, the Buddha who's helping millions of people because that's not my natural state right, right, right now, or right. at least in this lifetime, that's not my state. Yeah,
1: right. I, I, <laughs> I, I know that you, you have. Um, a blog about how to change your life, and it, it was very interesting to me. Some of the you you list about six things, yeah. and it was very interesting to me. Uh, one of the first things that you list about changing your life is um, to to create, to follow our creative impulse. Oh. That this this is part of the joy, I would think of. Being alive is, is that yeah. uh, I, I think you s- have some statistic that, let's say, for art, mo- most, most of us, 98% of us are consumers Consumer, of yeah. art and not creators of art. And so what would you say about the creative process? Oh,
2: it's, I think, the most beautiful thing that happened to my life is, and I'm I'm, I'm really, I guess, if there is one regret, I mean, you can't even call it a regret because that's the way it was meant to be, but I've, I have a little bit of a regret that for the first 27 years of my life, I never created. Uh, like, And then at the age 28 is when I started writing my first novel, and I think my life has completely transformed after that. So I wish... I had like believed in creating before because uh, like like, in in every form, what started was that my first novel was a very basic effort, but it took all the water that was in the well. So for the next novel, unconsciously, I knew I had to fill the well again. So I sought, sought out so many new experiences to fill the well again. Then I drew on it for the second novel, the well emptied again. Then I sought. So what happened was that if I'd never drawn the well I would never have had the impulse to, or the thrust to keep filling the well again and again. So so, so I think that's the beauty of the creative process is that it pulls everything that you have and then forces you to keep replenishing it, and keep replenishing it, and that just keeps expanding your life and makes your life bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's beautiful. I wish I'd started it earlier. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: well, you've started it early enough. You're 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 still on, under forty, uh, uh, so it, you, you know you've got a lot of years. Uh, but one of the things that we in in the West for sure, and possibly now many people in India as well. Uh, we're filling our lives with busyness. So I I know you have something to say about (laughs) busyness and being busy. And what's your advice?
2: Um, My advice is to shun busyness. (laughs) And I think you know, uh, I know, like even now, if I think of a day in which I, even simple act like writing a blog or doing a YouTube video, the contentment that I have at the evening is very different from the days when I'm doing technically busy work, like replying to emails, getting my calendar sorted, figuring out this, doing that. I can just sense the level of satisfaction and silence that I have at the end of the day is completely different in, in those two cases. right? So I think we know when we are filling our life with mundanity. And and when we start creating, we know that sense of silence, the the sense of being, feeling that this is complete, this is what my this is my ten. I'm I'm completely acting in line with my uh, like presence, uh, like my presence as a human. So I think you you note that, and and it's beautiful if you start noting that and automatically start shunning those busyness to get into more of creation mode.
1: More the yeah. creation mode. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Karan, Bajesh, and he's the author of the Yoga of Max's Discontent. I'm here with Karan Bajaj, and he is the author of The Yoga of Max's Discontent. And Karan, I would love to to talk I want to mention something. Um in in this book, it's a novel uh, the Yoga of Max's Discontent, but some of it is kind of autobiographical from from your own experience. And there's something that I I, I wanted to read because I think it's a really you you capture something here, and this is a scene where um, Max, who is your your main character in the book, he's traveling with two men on motorcycles in this remote part of northern India, and so he's traveling with Onkara uh, and Shiva, and onkara um, says. All over the world, people are striving for progress. Only in India can you live naked in the mountains like a caveman and have idiots ask for your blessings. And um, Shiva replies and, and responds to that, and he says, They aren't cavemen. They've just realized sooner than all the rest of us that man's soul cries for the infinite in a finite world. That is why nothing ever satisfies us. Now I, I really felt in in this this passage, it really captures something about humankind's source of longing. That we have this if if, if we uncover and unpack all, all of our habits and our our train of thought and all that comes to, to clutter our lives. If we uncover all of that, we come to this deep longing that is present. Um, I'd love for you to say something about your experience of that.
2: Oh, yeah, thank you. Uh, and this particular passage is very, actually, thank you for picking this up because it's very interesting for me personally also because it captures even the battle in India almost uh, because there is this external directed wanting very materialistic india and uh, you know is uh, becoming even more materialistic now and then there is always the the kind of the underlying spiritual tradition in the country and i was trying to cap- capture both because i think what happens in novels is that novels that are set in india romanticize it too much when they're written from a western perspective and never capture that materialism that is also very inherent in the country so so that's uh, it's it's interesting that you read the passage Uh, But to answer your question, though, yeah, uh, I I like this analogy in the yoga sutras very much in which it says that man's journey is like the flight of an eagle, in which uh, the first part of the journey is to spread your wings high, as high as you can take them and grow and fly, which means it's all about that longing is expressed through experiences in the world and flight and growth And then it comes a time when the eagle has to bring its wings down and complete its journey. If you like, you know, it has to move away from external flight to going within. And that's the second part of the journey where you have pushed the limit of experiences in the world and gotten everything that you can out of that. And then you have to go back to the source and find your completeness there. So, in a sense, uh, I've like I think that's a very good analogy of man's journey. That, uh, like, both are important experience, and then contemplation and connecting to the energy within, and like you know, like completing the journey, if you will. Yeah.
1: And and in in doing this, we we often have to then incorporate this as we go along too. I mean it's not just okay that we we get all these experiences and then sometime later on we start <laughs> to integrate them but 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 it's it's both and isn't it? Yes,
2: it is indeed and the only thing is that uh your purpose of that journey would be a little like uh for example, if meditation is your way of forming that connection, it's almost like meditation in the beginning phases is just to give you the stability to make your life in the world more productive and then it kind of morphs into a very serious practice which is really meant to connect you very completely within and like so you almost have to go from that uh, meditator who uses using meditation to be successful in the world to somebody who's almost like a cave dweller whether physically or not who's relinquishing all sense of self ego expression in the world to go within
1: So many of us, uh, when we are doing our meditation practices to be less stressful, let's say. There's some goal, so to speak. And you're saying that there comes a time as we continue this practice that all of that will dissolve?
2: Yeah. I think the fundamental disconnect is that in the West, meditation has become a...
1: A commodity. A commodity,
2: a practice to almost... Further your sense of self, like so, the whole movement of you'll become even more productive, so that you can do even more work, and you'll become calmer and less stressed, so that you'll be even more efficient and effective. While the point in the East is essentially is that meditation is a way of completely extinguishing your sense of self and becoming one with the infinite. So it's almost like there's a pretty pretty big, like I would say, fundamental disconnect that you're not furthering your sense of self and uh, in, in, in like true meditation in the East, you are like diminishing or completely kind of eliminating your sense of self, if you will.
1: So going back yeah. to your own journey on yoga, what is the attraction for you in, in the practice of yoga? Why, why, did, why did this attract you?
2: Um, very good question. I've, uh, I think part of it is a little bit, honestly, uh, maybe it sounds so like hokey, but like, uh, I think past lives and stuff, really, I've had a very strong pull, right from quite early, I've been very interested in the Bhagavad Gita Dho Panishad. So I would read a lot of like Eastern text. But I think all of those questions were very intellectual for me for a long period of time. And I would read all these texts very intellectually. My mom uh, had a very dramatic decline from cancer at age 54, 55, when she was pretty young. I was 26, 27. And I was very close with her during that time. I took like time off from work and was with her in her last phases. And I think seeing the human body decline in a very kind of rough, dramatic kind of way, uh, I think that put my questions on the meaning of suffering. Why does it happen In a very, it became very urgent for me to answer that. So I think then the practice shifted from a very intellectual, theoretical kind of practice to being a way for me to truly reach a satisfying conclusion to why all this happens. Like, how do you explain karma and is this the law of cause and effect? And can I truly, like, what does it mean? So I wanted to go from, so in Buddhism, they say there are three stages of learning: sharana, manana, nididhana, which means uh, the first stage of learning is you read. And like, you know, external sources, the second stage of learning is that you reflect on what you're reading. And then your third and final stage of learning is that you experience what you are learning. And that's when the learning becomes true. So I think I was for like many, many years, I was at the bottommost stage of learning. And I think my mom's kind of decline led me to reflect. And then it led me to truly experience teachings and reach to some kind of a conclusion, which would satisfy me about why life exists when it seems all seems so purposeless
1: when you do yoga it's more than just postures is is that correct
2: yeah yeah so i follow the the like the old uh, ashtanga or the eight limbs of yoga which is really uh, asana is at the like you start with like a very good ethical practices then you go to asana or poses and then you go to the dharana dhyana samadhi which is the concentration meditation and uh, samadhi is obviously enlightenment so the, like so i'm kind of like I try to follow the eight limbs, if you will. Like I like, you know, that pyramid of like going from the physical practice being a way to prepare myself mentally towards um, you know, the like I guess the union with the infinite, if you will,
1: and also having a strong body, like a vehicle to strengthen the body as exactly. your vehicle uh, for yep. it. you you mentioned briefly about. The meaning of life. <laughs> I, I, okay, that's that is the question. Uh, what is the meaning of life? Have you found a, a a truth on which you can stand? Have you found something that, that that is is stable that holds you? I think I mean I
2: like yeah, I, I think these things are a little hard to, you know, uh kind of give a one line summary about but I feel much more stable and content than I felt a few years ago and that's I would attribute a lot of it to the yoga and meditation practice but in some ways I feel uh, the true meaning of life is what the the definition of yoga in Sanskrit is chitta vritti nirodha which means stopping the fluctuations of the thought waves of the mind which really means that your sense of individual self dissolves completely so I'm I'm quite like I'm very uh, like I I think that's my definition of the meaning of life. So in some in my own small way what I'm trying to do is to become a conduit for my work, to become just a medium or a channel for my work. So whenever I'm working in my corporate life or I'm writing, I'm trying to kind of dissolve off all sense of doership and just become a way to I guess become a vessel to express myself. So in some small way I'm trying to live a meaning like a meaningful way even if I'm in very kind of corporate environments i'm trying to be very selfless and egoless but not even trying to be i'm trying to be like like i'm i'm trying to get to that point where i just spontaneously become a medium for my work really
1: so what you're talking about in in dissolving our our mm. small self yeah. into this infinite self or energy or whatever we want want to call it um it's not about well i, I this is my no. question is it about Transcending life—I mean, it, it, it's. I guess that that's one of my deep questions: that we're we're born in this particular incarnation yeah. in this material, physical body in this physical world, and uh, I, I guess that there would be some, especially let's say in India, there are some aesthetics that that would just want to transcend the body and yeah. just. You know, let go of 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 everything and just become one with the universe, uh, beyond the body. But I'm not sure that that's really what you're you're talking about. I
2: think it would be my goal as well at the end. But I think I truly, fully, like if you really ask me, I'm completely internalized that sutra's belief that I was talking about, where everybody's at different stages of that eagle's flight, if you will. Some people are still in the growth, evolution, spreading the wings phase. And a small minority of people have fully brought the wings down. So when you talk about the ascetics in India, which I spent a lot of time up with in the Himalayas, if you ask them, they have, it's a very conscious pull away from the world because they viscerally know and believe that in incarnations past and even in the present incarnation, they have experienced everything that the world has to offer. And they are consciously pulling away and going within. And that's their kind of journey because they like, like, you know, they would talk about like how they've experienced, like there's nothing in this world of senses that pulls them anymore. Where I am in my journey is that I'm not there. So I think I have some lives to go before I end up being that, being the ascetic who kind of brings his wings down. But I do believe that that is the journey. Of the, like, I, I think that's the reason for man to exist that he reaches a point where he feels that everything in the world has been experienced and now have to go within and complete the journey, like, if you will, and, like, you know, live a life of contemplation and away from the senses. Yeah.
1: I'm here with Karan Bajaj, and he is the author of The Yoga of Max's Discontent. here with Karan Bajaj, and he is the author of The Yoga of Max's Discontent. Karan, I'd love for you to say, there, there was another phrase that you use in how to change your life, and you you advise us, become a venture capitalist monk. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's not a matter of Quitting your day job, uh, or your day job may subsidize uh, that creative yeah. act. Uh, so, what what do, what do you mean by um, becoming a venture capitalist monk? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, no, thank you for <laughs> mentioning that. It's a funny one because uh, there are actually two components to it. One was uh, the venture capitalist idea, being that l- I've seen a lot of people work in their day jobs, sit in expensive restaurants, and complain. Uh, about their day job and like I'm not getting time. And my idea there was, if that's where you are, that you are stuck in a day job and you don't have uh, like the time to to build your art, cut everything out of your life which is superfluous, eating in restaurants, doing this, doing that, all these kind of busy activities. Take all that money and channelize into your art, and uh, like cut like save your time and money in superfluous activities. So in that way, you're a monk. You're not doing any superfluous activities, all you exist for is working so that you can make money and art so that you can, uh, but like, now, I'm not quite like that. Like I'm quite happy with my job. But if you're really in an unhappy job, and that's and your solution is your art, and you can't make money out of it, cut everything out of your life, become a monk and just work and then come back and do your art, take all the money from your work and put it into your art. And sooner or later, you'll start building a following that way. And like, slowly, you can kind of start transitioning into a full time artist life.
1: And then you are really investing in yourself. Exactly. Uh yeah. And and yeah. that is another one of yours uh, is yeah. to to invest in your own growth. Exactly. So this yeah. is where you're subsidizing yeah. that growth. Yeah. Uh, and and if you look at your work, even if it's not the most pleasant work or you're not happy in it, if you take the time for your creative passions, then you you're really becoming your own uh, investor. Exactly,
2: absolutely. And the funny thing I've seen is, and and this could be just an individual phenomenon, and that's why I don't want to make it like a rule, and I haven't even made it a rule for myself, is that every time I have invested in my art, it always comes back in droves. So if I think of my second novel... I really did a very, very, very strong marketing plan behind it, invested a ton of money beyond the advance which Collins gave me. I invested much more money beyond that using my day job to fund a very strong marketing plan. And then the movie deal that came back paid paid all of the effort that I'd put in. And then I think of my sabbaticals again, and again, I've seen the same principle that I take a year off and that year is a year of tremendous growth and transformation in new dimensions. Like uh, like which, But once I come back, they have a very tremendous effect in my material life, right? So if I, like after a year of doing yoga and meditation, I came back and I got promoted two or three times in a row quickly. And I couldn't attribute it to anything apart from, I guess, the stillness and calm which came from those practices helping me better, being better at my job. So every time I've invested, I guess, in that way, because in that year I lost money, if you will, uh, because I wasn't earning, I was living in ashrams and all that stuff it always comes back after a couple of years because I've transformed and that transformation shows in every activity.
1: So, uh, Karan, you're not saying that there's a guarantee here. That's not what you're saying. But you're saying in your experience, because you were, I would describe it as so at one with it, that uh, you're so uh, motivated and invested in it in a in a kind of purity, I, I guess I would call it, a purity of action that it it came back to you in in yeah. very surprising ways. That's the kind of like in my exactly. introduction, the zigzag of life. Yes. It, it, it zigged and it zagged and and you couldn't even predict
2: it. You couldn't predict it. And like I've, all I know now is that anytime I'm made, making a choice of growing, transforming, becoming deeper, more three-dimensional it always has a positive impact on in disconnected or unconnected ways. Because I know, for example, that I would never have gotten to a C-level position. Like I became a CMO, chief marketing officer of a, like a startup, and then I'm becoming a CEO of a media company. Now I would never have gone from, I would say, slightly above middle management to like the C-level so quickly. It's all I completely attributed to yoga, meditation, and writing novels. I just, I I, like, there is no other way to explain it because I've realized that those activities make me deeper, three-dimensional, more ambiguous, more intuitive because I'm an engineer, I'm very rational. I can like, even like you, you said, like in the blog, I would quote statistics on, like, I can't make a simple point without my statistics, you know. So I'm just like, I'm trained to be very left brain. And I think all of these activities make me much more, balance me out, make me much more intuitive. And that has to, that has always has a effect on work and really kind of spirals it up. So that's why I think it always, like at least, I mean, again, I don't want to make it a rule. I could be just one lucky person, but it, I, I always feel that it comes back.
1: So it, it's it's um, being in in flow in some ways, yeah. as Csikszentmihalyi has talked about this in previous books. And, yeah. and uh, he talks about flow and being in flow. Yeah. And this is, It seems to me that that's what you're talking about. Exactly.
2: I think which always, we came back to the original point in the discussion, which is, uh, I think all of these lives are one integrated flow, because if all of this stuff impacts my corporate life, now, for example, when I become, end up leading this media channel in India, I'm going to get exposure into a whole new world, which I think will in turn influence my art in a much better way than sitting in Brooklyn and writing in a cafe. Like... Because I'm going to be in the real world. I'll be working in Mumbai with like movies and entertainment and I'm going to learn things that I've never learned before and might I might end up writing a crime novel set in Mumbai, Bollywood. Like I, I guess I'm saying that's much... Like it feels like that would be more inspirational than... Now going back to Brooklyn and writing in a cafe the same novel that I've written again in a different form,
1: (laughs) right? And and there are many writers who do that. They keep writing the same thing over and over. Which Uh, could
2: be there, yeah. Like I think like, but but I think this like if I start thinking of everything as one stream, then I don't like I think this could be creative inspiration for the next book, and then the next book would provide more depth for the corporate life. Like it's all flowing into one. So again,
1: going back going back to what you opened with yeah. it's like um uh, reimagining our life over and over recreating our life it's like we reach some place and then you talk about let that dissolve
2: exactly break it down
1: break it down and or you use the metaphor of the well, you know, so you empty that well and now you've got to fill it up with something brand new.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And now attachment would be I've written this novel that is successful. Now let me quickly write a new novel so that I can capitalize on my audience. I don't think the world will reward that kind of attachment. I think <laughs> the 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 Buddhist approach is that whatever success or failure I've gotten here, let it pass. And now like you know, choose growth, depth, th- becoming three dimensional silence. Like whatever form you choose, and then if you have to express yourself through writing again, it'll happen. And you know, and hopefully the audience remains. Or if it doesn't remain, you know,
0: like <laughs> Not, again,
1: <laughs> just
2: keep going. Non attachment, you know, right? non attachment <laughs> this, is, this yeah. is very,
1: very, very good. Very good. So, and uh, uh, and I think that also you're you're asking us to be fiercely critical of the of the choices that we make in how we spend our time, that we need to really look at that and dissect that and say, okay, you know, what is it, when do I feel most alive? And you talk about the creative process is when you feel most right. alive. And I think most of us can really identify yeah. with that when when we've done some sort of creation of some sort, and then we we feel alive but that means that we have to make choices in our life about how we spend our time
2: yeah very much agree yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> so uh, i i just uh, i want to go out on one one how has your daughter changed your life
2: um two daughters now oh you okay. have two daughters <laughs> <Yes, yes. laughs> okay oh, one is 2 years old and one is 3 4 months old 4 months old now yeah 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 um Like in all the usual, so the surprising thing is is actually how it has not changed my life. Because the changing your life is very, like what you can expect. Like, you know, you feel an explosion of love that you never feel before. All those things have happened. But what I thought, which is very different, was that I would, I was almost in a hurry to do things before my daughters, because I'd like brought into the world, I guess, mythology, that the moment your kids are born, your dreams will die, and you'll become this steady... Like, you know, a uh, career guy who's not going to take any risks at all because it's like impacts your daughter's future. But I that aspect hasn't happened at all. I have actually felt that uh, my risk appetite has grown tremendously after having my daughters because, uh, because I really have brought into this research and which I really see in action also that there's this beautiful research from the Wall Street Journal where... Uh, the number of books that are in your house is a better predictor of whether your kids will read versus whether you read to them or not. Or or sorry, versus whether um, you tell them to read. Uh, Because the number of books in the... You may never read to your kids, but if you are a reader, the kid will pick it up. Versus if you're not a reader and you're trying to read to your kids, they'll never pick it up. So really, you have to lift yourself up as a person. So for me to tell them that you can become the President of the United States, while I'm like completely narrow and one-dimensional in my thinking and trying to just basically be as risk-averse as possible will never give them the courage and the liberation to become presidents of the United States. So the whole point is that like I felt that uh, more risk-friendly because I think I have to lift myself up so that they emulate me.
1: I want to thank you so much, <laughs> Karin, for being here with us today.
2: A real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I've been speaking with Karan Bajaj, and he is the author of The Yoga of Max's Discontent. And if you want to know more about his work and his blogs, his uh, YouTubes, his videos, you can go to his meditation courses. You can go to KaranBajaj.com, and he spells his name K-A-R-A-N-B-A-J-A-J.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org I'm Justine willis toms You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number
0: 3585. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, NewDimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge